In this video, what I'm going to do is, is we're going to talk about what is a cult? What makes a cult a cult? And what's the difference between a healthy religious structure or organization and a high demand and high control one that is very much not healthy? Hi, my name is Jordan, and you are listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content that you can find on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to help support myself and Great Light Studios in continuing to produce this content, there's a few ways that you can do that. You can find information about how to do that in the show notes of this episode. There you will also find links to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and also contact information if you want to reach out. If you enjoy this content or benefit from it, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another video, everybody. Uh, today, this is uh, what I consider to be a pretty important topic, and it's somewhat surprising uh, that we haven't covered this already. Um, and I want to do more videos like this uh, in the coming future where we tackle some of these more uh, less topics that are focused less on the WMSCOG specifically and kind of cover cults in a more general way. And so today I have on a, a friend, Lori, who is a former member of the SCJ or the Shinchanji cult. And if you have been watching our, our videos over the past few months, you've probably uh, noticed that Lori came on not too long ago and shared his testimony. He shared his story of joining the SCJ and how he eventually got out. And recently, um, Lori has his own YouTube channel. And so recently he released a video on his own channel covering this topic and talking about what makes cults cults and, and how to kind of distinguish um, between between healthy religious structures and, and ones that are not healthy, ones that are uh, high demand and high control. And so uh, that presentation that Lori gave on his channel was really good. And so I asked him to come on to here and kind of share that again with um, with all of you guys. As always, I appreciate you all subscribing uh, to the channel. If you haven't already, liking the video, commenting, um, all that is a huge help to me. Um, and also more than that, uh, go, go and check out Lori's channel. Um, it's SCJ Skeptic is the name of his channel and i'll link to that in the video description below he's focused on the scj cult and so um yeah he's, he's helping a lot of people to escape the cult and to you know heal and and um just a lot of good information that he's putting out over there on his channel so definitely go uh support him and what he's doing um and yeah with that uh i'm gonna welcome Lori on and i hope you enjoy this conversation and Lori's uh presentation here on what makes a cult a cult I kind of talked beforehand in, in my my intro that you you kind of did this presentation on your channel uh, recently, and you know I I listened to the first couple minutes of it you know when you first put it out and then just yesterday it was I th I think it was yesterday that I listened through the whole thing and I was just reassured that I definitely wanted you to come on and share that. And, and, um, yeah. and so that's basically what I'm going to have Lori do today is just kind of share that presentation that he shared on his channel. And I'm more or less just going to kind of sit, sit in the background and, and let him, <coughs> let him go through the presentation and I might jump in here and there. Uh, but for the most part, I just want him to get this information out to you guys. I've said it already, but definitely go and support, Lori's channel. Um, it's he hasn't been doing it super long, but there is a lot of good info out there. And so far, Great Light Studios has been really focused, as you guys know, the past couple of years on the WMSCOG cult. And Lori is focusing very specifically on the SCJ cult right now and releasing information that applies to other cults as well. But uh, definitely good information. And uh, we want to support others who are who are doing this kind of stuff because it is very needed and it's definitely helping people um so lori welcome welcome back thank thank you very much for having me appreciate it <laughs> um, um go ahead 
No, no, so I just, just wanted to say regarding the whole topic of cults, um, one of the important things when it comes to communicating with uh, ACJ or perhaps the, is it World Mission Society Church of God? Do I have correct? Right. I keep struggling. Correct. It's so long. <laughs> it is. It's um, a mouthful. I think that when it comes to having discussions with people uh, in cults, it's important to make clear what your definition of the word cult is. And I think that's one of the things where I only started using the word cult, perhaps I would say only about six months, maybe a bit more than that. I started using it for the first time. When I left ACJ, if people asked me about the word or is ACJ a cult, I would just say, I don't like the word cult. Um, also because ACJ has a specific definition that they attach to it, but there's so many different definitions that I've heard to a point where I felt like I just don't want to use the word. I don't find it very practical. Um, but either way, I think that the, the, the first and most important thing is the definition of cult, like how you define it. And it's, it's, I've seen a lot of people kind of to try to debate ACJ or have discussions with ACJ online where they'll simply like, you can clearly see that the two different parties have different definitions, but they never ask each other, how do they define it? And they end up constantly misunderstanding each other. And th this is not just about the topic of a cult, but just any kind of topic. It's one of the things that I learned in philosophical discussions that I've had with people is that they continuously ask each other, how do you define this? What is your concept of this? Before they start to have a discussion or a debate, because otherwise there's, they're just constantly talking about different things, assuming right. that the, the kind of the meaning that the other person has for a specific word is the same as themselves. And there's just constant misunderstanding. So I think that is extremely important. And that's just, I just wanted to emphasize that right at the beginning, that is yeah. extremely important. Otherwise you're going to have a mess of a discussion. It's not going to get go anywhere. Exactly. And I, I mean, that's, I think that's exactly why we're ha having doing this video right now, because, you know, and I don't know if this is your experience. I would assume it is in, in many ways with the SCJ. But when we will call the WMSCOG a cult, it means very little to them. It, it doesn't it doesn't yeah. it doesn't really offend them. It doesn't like it's not something that you say and then it causes them to have some kind of like aha moment or like it it, yeah. it doesn't affect them in any way it, it, it because that because that their their thought about what what a cult is is not what we are wanting that that definition to to entail when, when we say it and it's mm. it's something too where they they will just kind of pass it off and say oh well you know Jesus was was called a cult leader and and it was yeah. said about him that he he started a cult and so you know and so it just doesn't mean anything and so yeah i think that's why this discussion today what i'm hoping to do is to help explain and what Lori's going to do is more from a, uh, what would you call it? A, a not, not even I, necessarily a religious perspective, but from a, yeah, I like to, I, I like to, to phrase it as a social science perspective. So based on right. things like sociology and psychology, anthropology. Yes. So we're going to define it. He's going to define it. Um, I'll, I won't do too much defining myself, but from, from a, yeah. a psychology, sociology perspective, less from a, you know, um, theological perspective, what it is, um, yeah. because that's, that's more, I, I feel like that can be a lot more subjective and, and can lead to it just not having a whole lot of meaning. And so hopefully after Lori shares this, it can help people identify even, you know, what Laura, I, I kind of said in the beginning that I think this has application, not only to cults, uh, it could have, it could have, and does have application to, you know, different, just Protestant Christian churches or, or just different, it doesn't matter what, what denomination or, or, um, even religious organization it is. they, any any organization, religious or not, could display the characteristics that you are going to talk about. I mean, this this could even yes. um, relate to uh, relational dynamics between husband and wife, father, yes. mother, and children, or vice versa, boss and employee relationships. And so, hopefully, this information can just kind of help people identify um, unhealthy behaviors and 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 characteristics that narcissistic high control individuals or structures might operate in and and some of these things hopefully will, will, will um 
after you get this information, it'll stand out to you more when you might face it and encounter it in different situations in your, your actual day-to-day lives. Yeah. So, so if you don't have anything else to add to that, Lori, you can just go ahead and, and take it away. Yeah. So I just wanted to add one more thing is that um, in ACJ, so their definition of a cult is based on their specific interpretation of the Bible. So they believe that uh, their God, the God that they believe in and the Christian scripture is the source of orthodoxy. But from their point of view in ACJ, they believe that the Bible, a big part of it, uh, specifically the prophetic content in the Bible is written in parables or frigative language and metaphors and that it's ultimately a mystery or it's hidden by God until an appointed time when those prophecies are fulfilled. And that's the time that things are revealed. And that's the time that they can have the, you know, the true interpretation of the Bible is made known. And that true interpretation is what orthodoxy is. And people that do not follow it, essentially they label as a cult. So from like SEJ's point of view, theologically, they're the only true orthodox organization in the world and that everyone else essentially is a cult. Um, so they have a more kind of a theological uh, um, definition of orthodoxy and heresy, or heresy can also be defined as cult from their point of view, uh, where it's based on interpretation of the Bible. Um, so that's kind of more, as in philosophy, you would call that an epistemic point of view, where epistemology is a study of knowledge. So they would, they would kind of define a cult uh, in relation to the concept of truth and lies. However, the kind of definition that's adhered to within social science is more based on tactics or behavior. So it's more based on the way that people conduct themselves uh, and not necessarily about what they believe, whether it's true or not. So that's kind of where it comes into. So kind of to kind of go into it. So the first question we should ask ourselves, what is a cult? So of course, like I've said, there isn't necessarily like my definition is the only true definition. There can be different types of definitions, but the definition commonly adhered to within social science is that a cult is a high control group. So a high control group is an organized group who dominates group members through manipulation. And this manipulation implies that they control people for selfish gain by means of things like deception, indoctrination, exploitation, and also things like coercion. And high control groups are also sometimes called high demand groups because they demand a lot from the people where you have to give up your whole life for the goals of the group. So high control groups, they're, they're usually based on an authoritarian leadership style where the leadership or the people that are in charge, sometimes it can be an individual and sometimes it can be a group of individuals, um, but they have complete decision-making power. And they also don't have any responsibility to justify decisions. And this is a common thing that you find amongst high control groups or cults. And in this sense, a high control group doesn't necessarily have to pertain to a religious organization, but it can also pertain to a political movement or even like a self-help group, or you even get psychotherapy groups and various types of organizations that have these kind of tactics. So it doesn't necessarily have to apply only to religious organizations. So a very important thing to note is that people don't usually join high control groups voluntarily. And the reason why is that there is a lack of informed consent. People are not actually aware of what's going on. So the recruitment process that, that high control groups usually follow is very deceptive. And it's also based on uh, creating an environment of indoctrination. So the people that join the high control groups, they don't do it voluntarily, but rather they're recruited through unnecessary systematic social influences. And what that means is that it's there are excessive planned, controlled, organized, and repeatable ways through which people change their minds to meet the demands of their social environment. To give you one example of this in ACJ is that they, they do a lot of feedback about all the personal stuff in your life. So when they recruit you, they put people in your life that are currently in ACJ, but they pretend not to be in ACJ. And so those people are called maintainers. So they kind of befriend you. They build a relationship with you based on false background stories to kind of gain your trust. And then all the personal stuff that you share with them, they, uh, they share that with the leaders as well as the teachers uh, in the organization. And then those people develop plans to recruit you based on those kind of vulnerabilities and things that you've shared. And they also focus a lot on things like group conformity, where in their kind of Bible study classes, a large group or a large part of the class are people that are already in ACJ, but they're, they're pretend as if they're kind of first time students. 
So they kind of create this classroom environment where the rest of the students want to fit in. So human beings, we're social creatures. And we naturally, if there's a specific social environment that's created, we want to kind of fit in with the rest. And SEJ capitalizes on the idea of social conformity. Um, but what's actually quite funny is that they'll usually tell you, you should discern for yourself. But at, at the same time, they put you in an environment where it's very difficult for you to actually do that. They'll tell you, you shouldn't conform, but they create an environment of conformity. And this is actually quite, you know, sometimes people find it quite difficult to recognize this when they're in the church and they already believe it. But when you leave the church and you look back on it, it becomes brutally obvious that they use these uh, kind of social influences. So the people that are recruited to high control groups, um, they usually don't receive sufficient information in order for them to make an informed decision. And this is one of the reasons why I started my channel, to kind of empower people to think for themselves, to put content out there regarding the tactics of SEJ so that people can make an informed decision for themselves. If mm -hmm. after they've listened to all of that, they still want to join the SEJ, then, you know, go ahead. At least they had an opportunity. I'm not trying to force anyone to do anything. I'm certainly putting out content out there so people can make their own informed decision because I never had that opportunity. So I try to provide that opportunity for other people. So high control groups, they want members that are fully convinced of their doctrine. They want people that are obedient to their rules. They want people that are dependent on their authority figures. And they want people that are willing to sacrifice for their goals. So they essentially demand an excessive commitment to their cause. And these people that are that are fully convinced of their doctrine, obedient to their rules, dependent on their authority figures, the people that are willing to sacrifice for their goals, they will label these people as true believers or faithful followers. Um, another thing that you find within uh, um, high control groups is that they follow dogmatic doctrine, which is ultimately teachings that you're not allowed to question, and it's based on an authority instead of actual evidence. So there's this authority figure that tells you something and that you have to accept it without question. So of course, one of the reasons why people find ACJ very convincing is because the majority of the people that they recruit are already Christian and they accept the Bible as an authority. And anything that will be taught from the Bible, they will accept as the truth. Of course, I don't hold that view, but I know that most people do. But also, when you, when you look at the way that SEJ tends to teach the Bible, is that they take a very shallow approach. Um, if you had to compare them doctrine-wise to kind of more sophisticated theologians or Christian scholars, is SEJ doesn't look at the etymology of the, the, the words in the Bible. They don't look at the origin of the words. They don't go and look at the Hebrew and the Greek. They don't go and look at the historical context and the literary context. Right. They tend to see those things as useless because from ECJ's point of view, the Bible is written in mostly figurative language and that even the people that wrote it didn't understand its true meaning. So there's no point to try to look at its original context because the people that wrote it didn't understand it either. This is not about all the contents, but specifically the prophecies in the Bible. Um, and of course, another thing that you find within high control groups is that their doctrine tends to be untestable. And what that means is that it cannot be proven or disproven with evidence. So one of the things, one of the examples that SUJ will perhaps follow is that if there's something that happens, let's say, for example, they do something and things work out according to their goals, they will say that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if things don't work out according to those goals, if, if things go bad, they will say that is the work of the evil spirit. So they can essentially label anything that benefits them as God or their God or the Holy Spirit. And anything that goes bad is then the evil spirit. But this is not something that can actually be tested. You can't actually confirm this. Um, so this is actually an example of an untestable idea. It's the same as the way that when people leave ACJ, they will sometimes tell you when you leave that your life will get like really, really bad. It'll be really bad. But then your life turns out good. And then they will tell you, okay, no, but that's actually from the devil as well. Because what the, what the devil, what, he wants you to have a good life so you can be sucked in by the things of the world. So it's like, regardless of what happens, it's always evil. It's always wrong. And that's once again, an example of something that's untestable. There's no way to be wrong. Um, so because high control groups tend to follow 
untestable teachings, not all of it, but some of it, it makes it very difficult to have rational discussions with them. So like if you demand evidence, what they tend to do is that they shift the burden of proof onto those that criticize them. And this is a common thing that I, that I get when I criticize them. They will tell me to disprove what they believe. But many of the stuff that they believe is untestable. From, at least from my point of my point of view, my worldview, I can't disprove the things, many of the claims that they make. But that doesn't mean that there's a good reason to believe that what there is a good reason that what they believe is true to begin with. So a common thing that they do is they shift the burden of proof and they want you to disprove what they believe, but you can't because it's untestable. And then they think because you can't disprove it, they're justified in believing what they believe, which obviously is not the case. So one of the things that makes high control groups very kind of appealing to a lot of people is that they're very good at satisfying fundamental needs of people, psychological needs. It can sometimes make them feel safe, can give, it can make them feel like they're in control or the entity that they believe in or the leaders that they have are now in control of their life. They can also have a high degree of certainty, sometimes an extreme sense of certainty where they'll believe that what they believe is absolutely true and that it cannot be wrong, that there is no amount of evidence that can ever change their mind. Uh, one of the things that it can also satisfy is a psychological need of esteem where you find value within yourself or other people find value with you or other people recognize you, acknowledge you. It can also give you a sense of connection where you have a, a sense of belonging and relatedness. You have a community of people that you belong to. These are things that a lot of people need in their life and they these needs are not fully met. And then this culture starts recruiting them. And then before they know it, all their needs are being met and they're very happy. Another thing that uh, a cult's also very good at is creating a sense of self-actualization. And what this means is that you, as, as people, we tend to try to become the best version of ourselves. We have this ideal self, the way that we want to be. But then the group introduces this new kind of group expectation. This is the way that a true believer needs to be. Sorry, I hit the mic now. The way that a true believer needs to be. And so you, you think that you are becoming the best version of yourself, but in fact, you're actually becoming the way that the group wants you to be. And I think finally, another need, which can be called self-transcendence, is to find some kind of meaning, some kind of hope, some kind of purpose uh, in the world. This is a, something that people seek for. And of course, a lot of people are very kind of, they get to a point where they might be depressed or maybe they, they lost a loved one or something happened in their life. And now they want a purpose. They want hope. They want a reason to live. And so these are also things that high control groups are very good at doing. And not just uh, um, religious groups, but sometimes even self-help groups uh, are, are very good at this as well. So high control groups, they try to progressively get people to suppress their authentic identity, which you can call your actual self, who you really are. And they try to shift people's focus from who they want to be, which is their potential self, who they want to be in the future, to who the group expects them to be which you can call your in psychology, that's called the ought self, who the group ought expect of, who the group expects you to be, which is your ought self. So they also constantly try to reinforce this new identity, this ought self, the, the way that the group expects you to be. And they try to suppress your old identity, who you really are. And this is a constant thing that they do. And of course, one of the things within religious cults that they capitalize a lot is is trying to convince you that your authentic self is extremely sinful, extremely evil. You can't trust yourself. Who you wanted to be, the goals that you made for yourself, it's all worldly, it's sinful, it's not important, it's useless, it's not going to take you to heaven. So it's for, for people that, that, that believe in these religious beliefs, it's very kind of easy to convince them to throw those things away. So... One of the things, and, and this is very important, that one of the things that cults do really well is that they constantly try to maximize their control over the environment of the group members. And they also try to maximize it over those that are being recruited. So they try to control the environment of those in the group and those being recruited. They want to be in control as much as they can to control that environment so that the social influences can also convince the people. Of course, from like for, for example, from SEJ's point of view, they try to, uh, they, they think that they're just recruiting people with the doctrine and that the doctrine is the only thing that convinces people. They're using a lot of other tactics. And from their point of view, they think that those tactics, which I would consider unethical, 
they think that those tactics are okay because they're saving people that actually belong to the devil. So as long as they're saving people in the name of God, then that's okay. So in that sense, the ends justify the means. And, and another thing that they do is they try to minimize any outside interference. If there's, of course, inside of the church, they have this development process where they try to make people into true believers. And they don't want people inside the church to have too close connections with anyone outside of the church, because then that will influence that kind of development process. So they don't want any outside interference. And also specifically when they recruit people, they don't want there to be unnecessary outside interference. So they isolate the people that they're recruiting from anyone outside that could ultimately, you know, get involved and try to stop the people from actually joining the organization. So while they do all of these things, they will continuously kind of tell the people that are being recruited, as well as the people inside of the church, the members, group members, that they need to discern for themselves, which is quite ironic because they're constantly creating an environment where it's very, very difficult to discern for yourself. You're not given all the information. You don't have sufficient information to, to come to an informed decision, but they'll tell you, you need to discern for yourself. You need to discern for yourself. You're being empowered. And this gives you a false sense of control where you think, ah, oh, I'm in complete control. When I joined this organization, I was in complete control from the beginning. But in reality, you aren't. And this is sometimes quite difficult to explain to people because they really want to believe that they were in full control. Sorry to cut you off, but I just I think that was something that stuck out to me yesterday when I was listening. And, and as I'm hearing that, I'm almost trying to think of like a, a visual analogy that would fit to kind of explain what that looks like because it, it almost the, the i guess a picture that comes to my mind is it's almost like they they take these people outside of the the freedom and and like uh, of the real world and kind of they stick them inside this this box that they've created it's yeah. like if you actually think of a, a physical cardboard box and they they yeah. they stick them inside that this is their box that they've created and they've put what all the information and they've painted it however they want on the inside. Yeah. And then they say, you have freedom. You choose whatever, mm. whatever you want inside that box you can choose. And so I think when you say like people get this <coughs> false sense of false sense of, uh, of being able to choose themselves, it's, it's, it's kind of like that, that they are, they're choosing something, but they're not really free to choose because they've been so limited to, to, um, you know, through through fear tactics and and you know, yeah. like you talk about demonizing and demonization of any other goals or or the people in your lives or the things the things that you might want to pursue that they now have convinced you are worldly, and so uh, they 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 kind of set you up to where you you feel like you can choose but the choices that they've given you are their choices and, and are yeah. incredibly limited. So, yeah. So I just wanted to kind of share like some kind of tactics that are commonly used by high control groups. And most of these things apply to ACJ, but of course they can apply to other organizations as well. Um, so there's various tactics that high control groups that they use to successfully recruit people um, to make people more susceptible to changing their minds and also to make people uh, make people meet group expectations. So this is a common thing. So meeting group expectations is extremely important to them. They constantly want to make everyone meet a specific expectation. And of course, those group expectations are determined by, in SEJ's example, it would perhaps be Manny Lee and the tribe leaders, but it tends to be the people in authority that pretty much make the rules. Those people will tell you, this is the way that people need to be. And then the rest of the leaders, lower in structure, will then get the members to meet those group expectations. That was like when I was a leader, that's the constant struggle is you try to get students, you try to get members to meet specific expectations that are set by a higher leadership. It's a kind of never ending battle. There's constantly new expectations and you're constantly fighting for, to get people to meet those expectations. Um, so let's, let's mention some tactics. High control groups, they tend to keep their identity secret when they recruit people. So they, they won't be upfront about who they are, what organization they belong to. And they will also sometimes use front groups. They might hide behind front organizations to hide behind. Like for example, in ACJ, when you go to their kind of Bible study classes, it won't say Shinshonji center course or Bible study. It will usually like, they will sometimes use, uh, they will rent a building and they will 
set up signage of like this is a volunteer organization or something like that. And they sometimes they might even change it every kind of six months to a year because if people realize, oh, that place is actually SEJ, then what will happen is that they'll just change the name and they'll change the people that teach the classes there so that it seems like a new organization. And they'll convince everyone, no, yeah, we know SEJ, that cult, they're out. We're, we're a new Bible study. And they're actually quite good at doing that. So um, this is a kind of common tactic. Another thing is called love bombing is that they tend to lavish those who they recruit with a lot of attention, admiration, and affection. And this, of course, makes the people feel really special. So if you've got a low self-esteem, if you don't get a lot of kind of attention from the people in your life, now you meet this group of people and they give you a lot of attention, admiration, and affection. So it's really, it's a really nice feeling. You feel really special. It automatically raises your self-esteem and you'll be, you'll be more inclined to want to listen to the, what these people have to say. So they also try to make members believe that they are part of an elite group with a special mission. So this also, once again, it, it kind of raises your self-esteem. But a lot of the stuff is done on, they give you this attention, admiration, and affection. They make you feel special so that they can recruit you. So it's based on actual, it, it, it's based on false pretenses. So it might raise your self-esteem, but I would actually say that it provides a false sense of esteem because it's not built on people generally caring about you. It's not built on people sharing who they really are. It's essentially built on lies and it's not a sustainable way uh, to, to function. And another thing that they do is that they use the vulnerabilities of people to recruit them and to make, make them meet group expectations where the vulnerabilities will refer to weaknesses that can be exploited within people. And this is why uh, in SCJ's recruitment process, they spend a lot of time trying to understand all the difficulties you've went through in life, all the people that you've lost, your, your deepest heart desires, and they'll use all of these things and they'll develop a strategy to try to recruit you and to try to make you meet group expectations. So they ultimately use it against you so that you can sacrifice more, so that you can be more convinced, so that you can be more dependent and more obedient to the organization. And high control groups or cults, they tend to claim that they have the ultimate solution to life's problems and that everything outside of the group is meaningless. This actually makes it very difficult to kind of leave the group because a lot of ACJ people as well, they'll feel like, if I leave, what's the meaning of my life? What's the purpose? Because they've been convinced over time and it's been repeated so many times that everything outside of the organization is meaningless. They're running after earthly things that are temporal. It won't result in anything. That the, the, This group is special. They've got all the solutions to, to, to life's problems. No one else has these solutions. And that everything outside of this group is ultimately meaningless. So if you want to live a meaningful life, you need to do the work of the group. Um, another thing that they tend to do is they tend to say that the recruitment process is not happening by mere coincidence, but that it's part of some greater plan for the lives of those being recruited. So it provides ultimately a sense of uh, false, uh, false sense of purpose and hope. So the people that are being recruited, like for example, in the SCJ recruitment process, is that the, the maintainers will report a lot of the stuff to the teachers and then the teachers will use, they will use that information to try to convince the student that actually this whole process of you being guided with the word and you eventually joining ACJ, this isn't just happening by you know coincidence. God has some kind of greater plan for your life. But ultimately it's people made that plan. They created the whole plan to bring the person to the organization. But they'll tell you, no, it's part of, you know, God's greater plan. But because they mention a lot of stuff that the student shares in confidence with the maintainer, they don't know how the, the, the teacher could know this information. So they think, oh, perhaps this is guided by God because this person knows something, but I haven't told this right. person directly. So you think, like, wow, how did you know this? Do you have some kind of, you know, prophetic power? ACJ won't claim that they have prophetic powers. But it's sometimes something that people think when they're being recruited because they talk about things that you didn't tell the teacher. So you're like, how could they know? Um, and this actually also makes it very convincing, specifically if they speak about something that you have an emotional attachment to. If they speak about you know, pain in your life and they connect that to some kind of hope that's relating to their doctrine, it's, it can be a very powerful thing that you emotionally attach to. Um, so high control groups, they follow a very rigid schedule. And so that members and those that are being recruited can be very busy with the work of the group. So this also tends to make the people very kind of tired. 
So there's a depletion of energy, depletion of their attention. And this, of course, also makes them more susceptible to changing their mind. When you are tired, you cannot focus. You cannot discern to the same extent uh, that you would when you have a lot of energy, when you're well rested. So the people are very, very busy. Specifically, once you're in the church, you're very, very busy to a point where you become like this kind of zombie from time to time, where you just take in all the information. It's like this repetition, repetition, repetition. And before you know it, the more you hear something, before you know it, you just start taking it in and following it. And it becomes to a point where you can't even remember how you became convinced of it. But because it's been repeated so many times, you were very tired, you just kind of, you just kind of go with the flow. Um, and there's also other repetitive, repetitive activities that they might incorporate. And these are things like recruitment. There's co constant, you have to constantly kind of proselytize people, evangelize people, recruit people. There's also these kind of like fellowship gatherings where you spend more time with the people. They will also get you to do a lot of reading and memorizing of their doctrine. And this is something that ACJ did a lot to a point where you study their doctrine for hours and hours a day, and then later on, you can't even think in any other way about the world. All that you see is just what they've taught you. They don't allow you to look at any other kind of educational material or, or information because that's, you know, from the devil. It's going to deceive you. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the maddening wine of adultery. And then sometimes they will also have kind of like repetitive rituals, things like singing, dancing, chanting, prayer and worship. So those things can actually alter your mental state. If you get a lot of people in a room together and they do a lot of kind of chanting or they do a lot of singing together and it has an emotional effect on them, they're more likely if you give a sermon or some kind of teaching off of that, they're more likely to accept it because of the emotional state that they're in. This, I'm, I, I'm not necessarily trying to say that I know that the concept of like, you know, prayer and worship is used by religions or, or almost all Christian churches, I'm not saying that they're using that to indoctrinate people, but cults tend to kind of capitalize on that idea. So you can get a bunch of people where if, if, if they're well rested, they're fully attentive and just in a normal environment you, without any kind of outside influence or social influences, you simply try to teach them something. They'll be, if, if it's something controversial, they'll kind of struggle to accept it. But if you bring in all these social influences, if you if you kind of speak things specifically according that that will kind of trigger them emotionally, make them feel special. Uh, if you bring in some music and you kind of try to create some kind of emotion out of them, they'll be much more susceptible to accepting what you have to say. So it's not just about the doctrine in that sense. It's about the tactics used behind the doctrine in order to convince the people of the doctrine. And a big thing that they do, and this is one of the things that makes them very effective, is that they tend to isolate people by progressively trying to convince those that they recruit that those outside of the group is the enemy. They kind of create this us versus them mentality. And they also teach that only the group can protect the members from the enemy. So they create this enemy. And then who can protect you from the enemy? Who can provide safety for you? We can. You know, God is with us. We have all the weapons we need to fight this enemy. So it gives you this false sense of safety as well as belonging because you feel like we have this enemy. You also have this enemy. We can both recognize this enemy clearly. So we need to stick together. We belong together. Together we are strong. And another thing that they also, so besides isolating people, they also control information. So any information that opposes the group is labeled as deception. And this is a frustration that I sometimes have with ACJ people is that they will tell me that I'm a deceiver. So I'll tell them, okay, so I'm a deceiver. So what is deception? Deception is convincing people that something that is actually false is true. That's how you deceive people. So I would tell them, is there anything that I've said that is false, that is factually incorrect? And if that is the case, then point it out what that is. Don't just label it, label me as a deceiver. Show me how I'm deceiving. And if I am in fact doing that, then I'll change my mind. I really want to believe in what's true. But they'll usually just label it. They'll say that, oh, that's deception. But they can't show how it is deception. It's merely a claim. It's merely a label. That's pretty much where it stops. And another thing that they do is that they teach that only group members, people inside of this high group, uh, control group, only these members and the doctrine can be trusted. You can't trust anything else. 
So there's kind of this constant us versus them mentality, this kind of black versus white thinking. And this actually allows people to have an oversimplified view of the world, where it's basically, we've got the absolute truth. Everyone else is completely deceived. Everything is deception. Everything is false. The world is actually a very complex place. But we as human beings, we like to oversimplify things. We like it, it helps us to create kind of order in a world that is essentially there's a lot of chaos out there. And there's a lot of, you know, complicated things. There's a lot of randomness. There's a lot of things that we can't predict. It's quite difficult to kind of know exactly what's going to happen. And this kind of oversimplification allows us to kind of deal with that sense of uncertainty. And of course, this is a, a classic form of confirmation bias where you're constantly looking for information that confirms your belief and you're avoiding information that opposes what you believe. And in, in some senses, I think, as you've mentioned earlier with this whole idea of like a box over you, you could call that an echo chamber where you're basically, you're isolated from the rest of the world. And all that you hear is the ideas within the group that supports the group. And it's kind of echoed back at you. So that's all the information that you now have access to. So you don't really have access to broad information because the other information is now, you know, it's evil, it's deception. It, 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 it's from the enemy. All that you can, the only people that you can trust, the information that you can trust is from people inside of the organization. And it's, it is as a result of this, it makes it very difficult for group members to relate to anyone outside of the group. And so they feel like they can only relate to people inside of the group. And this creates a false sense of relatedness, where formerly you could perhaps relate to a lot of people, but now it becomes very difficult. And all that you relate to is people inside of the group, because the outside people, you can't trust them. And you, you struggle to relate to them because their thinking is so evil and worldly, and they belong to the enemy. It becomes very, very difficult to kind of hold relationships. And of course, an organization like ACJ, they might still have relationships with people outside, but it's, it's, it's usually very shallow relationships. And they'll, of course, also use verses like not being yoked with unbelievers. And they have all these verses that they kind of tell you not to spend too much time with those that do not believe what you believe. Because from ACJ's point of view, people that are not part of ACJ are not just false believers, but they're the same as like an unbeliever. So from their point of view, whether you're in another Christian church or whether you're an atheist, you're pretty much all going to hell. It doesn't really make a difference. So they're kind of like intense like that. And... Um, high control groups, they tend to withhold information and they misuse language. This is a big frustration that I have, is their misuse of language. So they tend to spread propaganda, which is misleading information that benefits the group. And I think the next one is, is the most frustrating for me. They use vague language. And then what, what happens with this vague language is that when they make statements, they can then later reinterpret what they said so that they don't have to take responsibility for making mistakes. A classic example of this that frustrated me a lot in ACJ is that there was a, a, a time in the past that Manny Lee said that first there will be the ceiling of the 144,000. Then there will be an event called the Great Tribulation. And out of the, that Great Tribulation, a great multitude in white will come. And then in 2020, 2020, he said that the Great Tribulation is happening now and that the fact that the Great Tribulation is happening is evidence that the 144,000 has already been sealed. So it, when I was in ACJ, whenever he would speak about the 144,000, he would speak about the 144,000 in Revelation 7, which is a reference to 12,000 people of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then later, there were people on Reddit and there were people that said, oh, he didn't refer to the 12,000 from the 12 tribes, he was just speaking about 144,000 people in general that are, you know, sealed. And this was like, it's very, it's very difficult to get Manny Lee to say like, okay, so I'm talking about Revelation 7, about this verse, this specifically was fulfilled in this way. He will tend to use very broad, vague language. And then later on, people can say, oh, but he didn't mean that. Can you disprove that? I can't because I can't read minds. It's very difficult for me to kind of then disprove it. And this is a kind of a constant frustration. The same with like, um, you know, some people have called like, I think Donald Trump and his movement, they've called it a cult. I, I mean, I know too little of it. I wouldn't necessarily label it as a cult. I don't know much about it. But a common thing that he said once upon a time was, let's make America great again. I'm sure you've heard that before. So an interesting thing that I once watched like a series of interviews with people 
um, where they asked him, like Trump supporters, like what did Donald Trump mean when he said, let's make America great again? And because he didn't initially explain any form of detail. So when they asked people, what did he mean? They all had different answers. So they had certain things, difficulties they went through in life. And then they kind of thought, okay, he's speaking about improving the conditions of certain things that I went through. They kind of attached their own kind of meanings to it. And this kind of produces a lot of confusion. And this is a common thing you find within cults as well, where, you know, the, the leaders will use vague language and then members will be confused and they'll kind of develop their own kind of different, you know, interpretations over time. And then later the leader will be like, I didn't say any of those things. You guys are just following your own things. This is what I meant. But so I've, I've had a couple of cases where I, I really want them to be like very specific. Tell me specifically what you mean by this and this and this and this and this. And then they'll usually be like, oh, you know, we don't know, the, you know, the promised pastor will later reveal it. It's like, I mean, from ACJ's point, sorry, I'm, I'm really frustrated with this, but no, from ACJ's point it. of view, they believe that unless you perceive these things in this way, you'll go to hell. Like if you're not convinced of this, you're not a true believer, you'll go to hell. Like what kind of like this God of SEJ, what kind of God would communicate so vaguely mm -hmm. and then tell, then think that unless you're convinced of this, you'll go to hell. Like, isn't and that it, just, just insanely immoral? Speaking in such a vague way that it's, it's just a recipe to deceive people and bring people into different opinions about what he said. And, and, and it's, just, it's a form of gaslighting too, isn't it? When, when later on, he'll be questioned about it or, or the leaders yeah. will often be questioned or, or it'll be kind of brought up to them and they will, as, as you said, kind of put it back on them. Like, well, I never said that. What are you talking about? I didn't, where did yeah. you get that from? Who told <laughs> you that? And, and then they kind of put it back on, on you as if there's something wrong with you and your thinking for asking that question in the first place. Yeah. It's extremely frustrating. It just, it's to a point where, I just want them to start taking responsibility for what they're saying. If they make a mistake, it's okay. Then just admit your mistake, but they can't even admit yeah. their mistakes. Mm -hmm. They will say stuff and then it doesn't happen. They'll reinterpret it and they won't even apologize for not saying it correctly initially. And it, I don't know, that just kind and of this, drives this me is, crazy. Yeah, it does. I, oh, I mean, this is, uh, that, that applies so much, I think, to the end of the world predictions because that's something that these, these groups just thrive on is, is making, I, I, I'm not too familiar with if the SCJ has made specific, put specific dates. It sounds kind of like some of what you said, they put some dates on certain things and then gone back on it when things haven't played out that way. But you know, like the, the world mission society church of God pretty infamously predicted the end of the world in 2012 and oh. to the point to where they were pressuring people to quit their jobs, to, to, to sell their possessions, to just kind of just, you know, make horrible, horrible life decisions uh, because the world was going to end and all they needed to be oh. doing, it was focusing on preaching and bringing more people into the church. Then, of course, when it didn't happen, um, rather than owning it, uh, apologizing to these people who they pressured into, you know, in, in many ways, messing their lives up in substantial ways, rather than owning that and apologizing, they just, you know, put it back on these members and made it out as if they were the ones who had done something wrong by, by coming up. Where did you get this idea that, you know, we never yeah. said the end was coming in 2000. And so they just, they'll adjust it. And like they, mm. they speak in vague enough ways to where they're, they leave themselves sort of exit, exit rooms. You know, they can yeah. always, there's it's always an exit. Plan. They speak yeah. vaguely enough and unclearly enough that they know they can always later on, if things don't go the way that they're saying, they can get out of it. Yeah. Extremely frustrating. <laughs> yep, it is. And then, yeah, I mean, when it comes to language is that they will sometimes use language that contains kind of misleading assumptions and, and, and also produces kind of strong emotional responses, which you would call loaded language. So it's a, it's a common thing. I mean, if, if you want to see examples of this, you, you can just look at some of the comments on some of the videos on my channel where people are constantly labeling me as the devil and they'll ask me like loaded questions like, how does it feel to be a deceiver? How does it feel to be, do the work of the devil? 
and then I'll use still, okay, then show me how I belong to the devil. Then we can have a discussion. But there's constantly yeah. so many built-in assumptions in their questions. And they're trying to kind of produce, they, they use inflammatory language where they're trying to produce a kind of a strong emotional Arise. response. Yes. Um, the thing is, like, if I can use examples, like when people label me as like from the devil and I'm full of evil spirits, I, there was, I was even once told that I've got, I kind of considered this a bit of a compliment because I'm not religious, but people told me I've got some very strong demons inside of me because I'm very convincing. So I thought, thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if I was religious, I would be deeply offended, but um, I, I understand where they're coming from. So, um, but it's, it's, so people trying to kind of get that kind of response from me. So yeah. I, I, I don't have a religious worldview, so I, I'm not affected by those things, but a lot of ex-ACJ uh, uh, people that left ACJ, they are very much affected by that kind of language. And I, I kind of, I, I've told numerous times people like, if, if you tell me that, that doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. So like, it doesn't produce the response um, that they essentially sometimes want. But the frustration usually is, is that there's many cases where they will kind of say, Laurie, you're deceiving people. Then I'll tell them, okay, so I'm deceiving people then tell me one thing, just one thing in any of my videos that I lied about that is factually incorrect and they provide the evidence. And then they won't respond to that. They'll attack my character. They'll speak about how I'm stuck in man's thoughts, how my ways are not greater than God's ways. Why do I think so? I'm demon possessed. I'm going to go to hell. There's still time for me to repent. They don't actually respond to my question. Please just give me evidence. And if you do, I'll change my mind. And I've been waiting for a very long time now for this evidence of the people that have the truth. And unfortunately, it's, it, it hasn't been going well for them. They just resorted to character attacks again and again.